Good morning. My name is Ji Yun Huang. The scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the uh, pastors at City Life Presbyterian Church right across the river. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, it's good to be back and worship with you this morning. Uh, and thank you, Lord, again for um, really whetting our appetite for God's Word. Uh, two weeks ago when I preached, I felt like the kid's sermon was better than my sermon, and even hearing the Word this morning, I'm, I'm encouraged that I don't have much else to say, uh, but to continue to build on uh, what Laura shared with us this morning. But uh, yeah, today we were, uh, I wanted to spend time reflecting on this psalm. Uh, if you're familiar with the psalm, it's part of a collection of psalms in the Psalter uh, called the Songs of Ascent. Um, and as Laura introduced us this morning, uh, today I want us to, to reflect and meditate on this thought of unity and community. Unity and community. And we see this theme all throughout Scripture and, and throughout the New Testament. And as, and as Laura introduced to us this morning in, in John 17, you know, as, we, as we come upon Holy Week this Palm Sunday, uh, the night that Jesus was about to go to his death, the night he is going to the cross, he prays his final prayer to God the Father. You don't know if this is going to be his last prayer. It's, and if it's going to be the last time he talks with God, it's going to be something important. And what does he pray for? As we heard this morning, he prays that we would be one as he is one with the Father. You know, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Uh, but there's a real problem for us this morning. How many of us today would actually characterize our experience of life in the church, whether it's here in your own congregation or the church at large, as one, as brothers, as the psalmist says, as brothers dwelling and unity. You know, to the watching world, are we as the church known as a people for our unity, our oneness, our togetherness? Or rather, are we known for as a people for our division, our polarization, our disunity? You know, divided by our politics, divided by our theology, by our culture, by our ideology, by fill in the blank. You know, from the past two years alone, we've all witnessed how polarizing and divided we are as a nation. But sadly, this truth is, is true for us even here in the church. And so this morning, I want us to consider what does God's word say about this theme of unity and community? You know, what does Christian unity and community actually look like? And so there are three, three things I want us to reflect on on this idea of unity and community we see in this passage. First, it involves a shared family relationship. Secondly, a shared communal fellowship. And lastly, a shared witness to the world. 
So first, let's look at the shared family relationship. If you'll look with me at verse one. And the psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so the key word I want us to focus on this morning is this word brothers. You know, this is a family word. Uh, So here's the first point. Christian unity and community is ultimately grounded in our shared family relationship as siblings. Our unity is based on relationship as siblings. Uh, So what does this mean? You know, what's unique about this dynamic of sibling relationships uh, compared to all other relationships? You know, the bond of siblings is actually different from all other types of relationships if you take time to think about it. Uh, Think about your friendships, for example. You know, how do we become friends with someone? Think about uh, when you're little and you went up to, the, uh, to someone in the playground and you asked, hey, will you be my friend? Um, but you choose your friends. It's up to you to decide who you want to befriend and who you don't want to befriend. You befriend others who share your preferences, who share your affinities, who share common ideas. So in other words, we make conscious decisions and choices about who we befriend. And the selection of friends is always subjective. We all have our own personal criteria from whom we befriend. But your relationship with your siblings are different. You don't get to pick and choose your siblings, your brothers or sisters. You don't actually choose for whoever is in your household to be your brother and sister. You're not related to them based on some subjective criteria or personal preference, but you're related to them by birth, by blood, by legal status. You share parents in common. So in other words, your relationship is objective and not subjective. So similar to our biological families, here in our spiritual families, our relationship as siblings is the same. You know, the metaphor of siblings is what the New Testament actually uses to describe our relationships with one another here in the church. Our unity as a spiritual family is not grounded primarily in your politics, your shared attitudes, your shared preferences, It's not even grounded whether you like each other or not. But time and time again, we're reminded what binds us together is the shared relationship with Jesus by his blood, by our new birth as his children, by our adoption into his family, by sharing God as our father and Jesus as our older brother. Our unity as a family is an objective spiritual reality. So that's the first point. But as we dig deeper, there's another dynamic as we think about sibling relationships I want us to consider. If you look around here in the room, we also realize that within this family, we're also very different from one another. You know, if you read the New Testament, Paul illustrates this in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, He uses his image that we are one body, uh, but many members. You know, some of us are an eye, some of us are a hand, others of us are a foot, but we all make up one body together. He says there is one spirit, but with different gifts. Some of us have the gift of teaching, others of of us with the gift of hospitality, others with the gift of administrating, but they all come from the same spirit. And there's one Lord, but different kinds of service. Some of us are pastors, others of us are evangelists, others of us are teachers, but we're empowered by the same God. So another way to put it, Christian unity is not the same as uniformity. It means that unity within the family of God is more about togetherness as siblings than it is actually about sameness. 
You know, today in our society, when we think about oneness, unity, we think about sameness. But in the scriptures, time and time again, unity is actually about togetherness in diversity. We can be one family together, yet different. Uh, So what does this mean for us today? Um, There's just two practical implications about this truth. Uh, The first is that we share a family relationship with people who are very different from us. Uh, Different politically, different racially, different culturally, different socioeconomically, different temperamentally, different in age or gender. In Christ, we're all adopted into one spiritual family, but the boundaries of our family lines actually extend broadly to include those who are different from us. So the vision of the church all throughout Scripture is actually a vision of a cross-cultural and diverse family, not a homogenous family. But there's another truth. Secondly, it means that there are people right now here in this room, but also at the church at large, that you did not choose to include, that you did not choose to invite, you did not choose to befriend, but God has You are are brothers and sisters with others in the church that are very different like like us, whether you like them or not. And again, we're related to them not because of our shared politics, our shared racial ethnicity, our shared culture, but simply by the fact that we share a common relationship with God as our Father and Jesus as our brother. So a simple question this morning is, what is the most fundamental bond and how you choose to relate to someone as your brother or sister. Is it your shared relationship with Jesus, or is it something else? Another pastor writes this, Do you feel more at home with someone who shares your politics, but not your faith? Or do you feel more at home with someone who shares your faith, your relationship with Jesus, but not your politics? And here the psalmist is saying, The vision of one large, diverse family is good and pleasant. Uh, Starting in 2005, our uh, church started sending short-term missionaries uh, to partner with an organization in um, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, called Ethiopia Act. And I've had the privilege of going on these trips uh, for a couple years now. Uh, And there's something powerful when you meet another Christian from another culture in another part of the world. You know, you can be in a completely different host culture, a completely foreign land or place where you don't speak the language, uh, you're not familiar with the customs, a place where you clearly don't fit in or feel like you belong. But when you meet another Christian in this place, when you meet another person and find out that he or she is a brother in Christ or sister in Christ, there's this instant connection and bond that you share with them that you can't quite put into words. Uh, So when I met Gazao or Jambo, Uh, in Addis Ababa, you know, after 30 minutes of talking with them, after 30 minutes of hearing their story and about their life and how Jesus had changed their life, I only knew them for a short time, but instantly there was a deep shared connection uh, that we had. You know, sure, I felt out of place when I was in Ethiopia. I'm a a Korean American uh, who grew up in South Carolina, who now lives in Boston, who is now uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and I didn't feel at home. But when I was with them, there was something that transcended place, that transcended location, but there was a sense of home. And every time we would say goodbye at the end of the trip, there was this genuine sense, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again, 
but I know this isn't goodbye because in the new heavens and new earth, you will always be my brother and sister. So on the one hand, the psalmist is telling us Christian unity is an objective reality. You are brothers and sisters. You share one family with people different from you, whether you like it or not. But here's a challenge. Just because we're part of the same common family, by spiritual adoption as sons and daughters, we share the same heavenly father, that doesn't mean we experience the fullness of unity that Jesus prayed for. We can still be a divided household. We can still be an estranged family. We can still be divided by uh, different reasons. So spiritual and community is at least being related by blood. Uh, But it's much more than that. And this leads me to my second point, shared communal fellowship. You notice how the psalmist doesn't just say, how good and pleasant it is to be brothers. No, but there's a qualifier. He says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell. You know, the Hebrew word here for dwell literally means to live together. You know, these siblings aren't just coexisting in the same house. They're not just tolerating one another, but they're dwelling together. Uh, So what does that mean? You know, for the ancient Israelite who was singing the psalm, uh, this picture of brothers dwelling together likely evoked this picture of a family uh, around a table. You know, in communal and ancient culture, sharing a meal was very symbolic of sharing life with one another. There was a deep dwelling together. You know, here in America, when we think about Thanksgiving, uh, we get together with our family. Some of you look forward to that. Some of you dread uh, that day. Uh, but the idea is that when we get around a table, it's less about the sharing of food or the passing around plates or uh, doing meal family style but it's more about sharing our lives, sharing our stories, uh, sharing laughter, sharing tears, sharing our grief and sorrow. And there's this beautiful picture of a family gathered around the table and experiencing life with one another. What does that look like today? You know, if the family of, of God is comprised of people very different from you, even here at Christ the King, You know, that means we have different types of people who gather here in the Sunday morning to worship. We can coexist under the same roof. We can sing to the same God. Yet how many of us can honestly say that outside of these walls on Sunday morning, that there's this deep experience of fellowship, of dwelling together from Monday through Saturday? Dwelling together with those of us who are different politically, different temperamentally, different culturally. So the point is you can be related to someone as family. That doesn't mean that you engage them relationally and dwell with them. Uh, So it's so much easier to pursue this surface level unity. We gather together on Sunday morning. We sing to the same God. But Monday through Saturday, there's no dwelling. There's no living. There's no life around a table together. Uh, But the picture that Jesus prayed for, the one that he gave up his life for, there was, there was a deep oneness of fellowship. Uh, so when, when, as I look around this room, I'm actually very encouraged uh, as I'm worshiping with you, as I'm singing with you, to look around this room and see all of the intergenerational diversity here in this covenant community. Young children who are growing up, but also people here who are grandparents, who've walked with Jesus for a long time. Uh, so there's something beautiful when you gather on Sunday morning, you actually clim- catch a mini glimpse of heaven when you see people from all different walks of life, different life stages, come before God's presence. 
But again, how many of us can actually say that even within this congregation, that there is a deep fellowship dwelling together outside of Sunday morning? And here's reality. I don't want to talk about this lightly, and I want to be sensitive to realities of how challenging this can actually be lived out. Especially over the past two years, as we think about the pandemic and the restrictions, it's allowed for us to be in one another's homes. Or for young parents uh, to navigate nap schedules and having people over their homes. Or uh, for those of us who commute and live far away. There's all kinds of modern logistical challenges that prevent us from actually sharing life with people in different life stages. You know, it's much easier to be integrated on Sunday morning and be separated throughout the week. Uh, But the vision that we constantly see time and time again throughout Scripture, if you look in Acts 2, it's a picture that is radically sacrificial and costly. If we look at the early church, we see a community of God's people who are meeting one another's homes, sharing meals together, sharing the possessions with one another, selling their possessions and giving to the poor, and sharing the gospel to their neighbors and serving the needs of the broader community. In short, it's the fullest sense of dwelling together in worship, fellowship, and mission. And so we have to ask ourselves, what might it look like for you today to engage one another in your own church family across racial or uh, generational lines? If you're old in the church, what would it look like for you to pursue fellowship with younger men and women in the church? To invite them into your home and dwell with them, to share your life with them, I invite them into your community group. Or if you're younger in the church, what would it look like for you to actually pursue a relationship with someone older? To invite them into your life. Um, just simply put, today, even in service, uh, perhaps it just means uh, after a long season going up to some, saying to someone, hey, will you have a meal with me this week uh, to share life? To sit around the table, to share your struggles and burdens, uh, to pray and encourage one another. And this is the picture that the psalmist is writing. Imagine a community where this sort of dwelling t- took place. It is good and pleasant. But it's not just our differences and life stage that uh, create this barrier or challenge or separate us or divide us. Uh, but the past two years, we've seen how we've been separated and divided on racial lines and racial differences. Uh, when I was in seminary at Gordon-Conwell, uh, and I lived on campus and I moved up here, you know, it was one of the first times I ever experienced living uh, in this multi-ethnic Christian community. Uh, we had Christians from all over the world, from different countries, who came to the States uh, to study at Gordon-Conwell. I had friends from different parts of the country, uh, from different ethnic backgrounds, who were, were American, who came to study at the seminary together. And I'm not saying it was equally balanced or distributed by any means, but it was at least a small glimpse of what the church on earth could look like or what the new heavens and the new earth could look like in the future. But at the same time, if you were to walk in the dining hall, uh, you know, for dinner or lunchtime after class and looked around at the dinner tables where friendship was being formed, where relationships were developed, uh, what would you find? Most of the time, and I'm generally speaking, not always, uh, you would see uh, the Korean students communing together at this table, and that's often where you would find me. You would see white students sitting together at this table. You would see the black students sitting together at this table. And on occasion, you would see a table 
that it was integrated where cross-cultural friendships were being formed, where questions were being asked, where life was being shared. And this was a beautiful sight to witness. So in one sense, there was this objective unity. We were all brothers and sisters in Christ. We were all at the same school. We were all part of the broader church at large. But that didn't mean that as a student body, we were actually dwelling together and doing life with one another. So does that resonate with any of you this morning as you think about your own experience here at Christ the King or even with Christians at large in our own city? And again, I, I want to be honest in saying pursuing racial unity and fellowship is also sacrificial and costly. Now, for honest, America as a nation has a painful history when it comes to uh, people of color seeking to dwell together with people of the majority racial culture. And so does the American church. The reality is that people of color for generations have been wounded by their experiences of being in the same room together in worship, sitting across a table of fellowship. And I think all of us here this, have seen over the past few years how difficult and how challenging this is given uh, the things that divide us. And so the first proper human response I think that the church actually invites us to is to grieve over that reality. You know, before we can talk about cross-cultural fellowship, before we can talk about cross-cultural unity, we actually need a space in the church for corporate lament where people can actually grieve and name and express their pain and sorrow. We need to create spaces for corporate confession where we can humbly admit our sins against one another. We need spaces to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, unity and fellowship is always on the far end of lament, confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. But at least it always starts with sitting across a table and doing life with one another. At least here in your own congregation with your own church family, how might God be calling you to cross that line, to befriend, to experience communion and fellowship with those who differ from you culturally? And the reality is we can talk for hours. Uh, these are just two examples of the things that divide us in our country, that divide us in the church, and these are just two examples. But the point is, uh, this division across felt lines in the church isn't a modern phenomenon, uh, but it's actually been something that has happened for 2,000 years, since the early first century. You know, if you read the New Testament during Jesus' day, fellowship and gathering around a meal was highly stratified by class and race. Uh, Roman meals expressed the social order of class. The wealthy would never sit at the table with the poor. Jewish meals expressed the moral order of religion. Jews wouldn't eat with those who they deemed unclean. The dietary laws restricted uh, religious people from eating with Gentiles. So sharing a meal together at a table is ultimately about who are the insiders and who are the outsiders. Who belongs and who doesn't. You know, does that sound familiar of our own experience of the church? But in this highly stratified society, how does Jesus actually show up on the scene? You know, when we read the gospel accounts, we often hear about Jesus coming to earth on a mission, especially this week on Holy Week. And the line begins with, the Son of Man came to blank. So in Mark 10, we read, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19, it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. These are two statements 
that answer the question why Jesus came. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. But how did he come to do this? And in Luke 7, Luke writes, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. In short, he comes to dwell with us, to fellowship with us. You know, if you wanted to track down Jesus during his days, you likely would have found him in someone's home at the dinner table sharing a meal. You know, the Jews of Jesus' day would have said, the Son of Man will come in glory and power to defeat their enemies. They would never have said he will come eating and drinking. And not only that, as you look, who does Jesus come to eat and dwell with? He dines with the social outcasts, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He dines at home of religious hypocrites, the Pharisees. He sits and drinks with tribal enemies, Samaritan woman. In other words, he pursues love and relationship around a dining table with a loaf of bread and a cup of wine, but he dines at a table with those that every single one of us here today would say, I can never sit across and dine and dwell with that person. Uh, But his mission wasn't simply to come to dwell with sinners, but ultimately to give his life and die for those who hated him, for those who rejected him, for those who would ultimately crucify him to die for his enemies. And so this morning, the challenge is if Jesus is willing to dwell with sinners like you and me, if he's willing to get up close to our suffering, to our sin, to our pain, if he's even willing to shed his own blood to purchase our peace and reconciliation, then we know it's also going to be extremely costly and extremely difficult to pursue the same unity with one another. Costly to our comfort, costly to our pride, costly to everything that wants to keep us separate. But it also means that this pursuit of unity was worth it to God. And he was able to say, like the psalmist, it is good and pleasant. Uh, So this leads us to our final point. Why? Why is unity and community good and pleasant? And this is where I'll end here, our shared witness to the world. You know, this final thought isn't necessarily in this psalm, uh, but as we approach Holy Week uh, and Jesus' journey, uh, final journey to the cross, I want to end here with this thought. You know, in John 17, as we were talking about earlier, the night that Jesus is about to go to his death, uh, he prays this prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is praying for a future oneness, a oneness that hasn't fully been realized, but that is to come one day. And the question is why? Why does Jesus pray for our union? Why does he give up his life on the cross to purchase our unity, and and he tells us in verse 21, and he says this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In our current divided and polarized cultural moment, what will help the watching world believe in the beauty of Jesus? What will help our neighbors see the good and pleasantness of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus? And Jesus prayed this, it would be our unity and community, our dwelling together as one family, our fellowship as brothers 
with those who are different from us in every way. You know, in John 13, Jesus says that the world will know you are my disciples. How? By our love for one another. And it's especially by our love for one another with those who are different from us, with those who disagree with us theologically or politically. It's especially for those who are different from us culturally. And what does this practically look like today? In a political or theological discussion or conversation, it means humbly listening to someone and asking the question, are there actually differing perspectives that I can learn from this fellow brother or sister? Do I have any cultural blind spots that I actually am not aware of that I need this brother or sister to help me see? Or it means simply just asking, God, how are you calling me to love and care for this person? Not because of the ways they agree with me or disagree with me, but simply because they are my brother or sister in Christ. You know, if we look at the watching world today, in our current divided and polarized cultural moment, the reality is there is no more powerful witness to the watching world than our love for one another, than our communion with one another, than our fellowship together as one body. As we approach Holy Week, if this is what Jesus came to do, if this is what he came to die for and prayed for, uh, this is actually the invitation the psalmist is inviting us to sing, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Uh, will you pray with me? Uh, gracious God, we recognize it's easier to talk about this uh, to preach about this than to actually live it out. That is extremely costly uh, to bring together enemies, uh, to bring together people of different tribes, to bring together people who have hostility to one another. Uh, but we're reminded that in the gospel, Jesus, you gave up your life uh, that we might be one, that you came to dwell with us, and not with people that were like you, but especially those who were unlike you. God, as we see this picture of your unifying love, your costly love, Spirit, we pray that this would empower us and equip us today uh, to show to the watching world that there actually is a way uh, that leads to healing in the midst of pain, that leads to unity in the midst of division. Um, but God, it starts with us. Would you humble our pride? Would you humble us of our uh, blind spots and help us to uh, not see each other uh, for our differences, but to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ who share a relationship with each other in our families. Um, God, only the gospel can do that. Uh, so we ask you, even starting this week, would you help us uh, as we pursue this together? We pray these things in your name.